I'm a self-proclaimed technology addict. Managing my relationship with technology is a constant work in progress. But since I've been researching and talking to experts in the field of technology and well-being, I've really made some strides in breaking my dependence on my mobile devices. I found that awareness is half the battle. The other half is making mindful decisions on when and where to use your technology. And for most of us, including myself, it's easier said than done. This is the Work Well podcast series. Hi, I'm Jen Fisher, well-being leader for Deloitte, and I'm so pleased to be here with you today to talk all things well-being. One of the things that tech companies have done systematically over the last 15 years or so is to eradicate what we call stopping cues. So a stopping cue is any moment in an experience that gently nudges you onto the next thing. The, the tech companies that try to capture your attention try to remove all of those little barriers. Everything is bottomless, endlessly scrolling, feeds are infinite, there's just this kind of loop that keeps going and going and going. And, um, and that's by design. Borrowed from casinos in even the 1950s and 60s where they became designed like a maze where once you were in you couldn't get out. I'm here with Adam Alter. He's an associate professor of marketing and psychology at New York University's Stern School of Business and the author of the book, Irresistible, The Rise of Addictive Technology and the Business of Keeping Us Hooked. So Adam, let's start this conversation out on a positive note. How has technology changed our world for the better? I think it's made it much easier to connect to people who are not in the here and now. So this is a big deal for people who are international, who've traveled. And for me, that's true. 15 years ago, I moved to the US and it was very, very hard for me to connect to my family in Australia. And maybe five years after that, the technology associated with Skype and with FaceTime and with you know all the cameras that we put on our computers had improved to the point where I could have real-time conversations. So that now my, my kids who are one and two they don't actually distinguish between their grandparents being in the room and their grandparents being on camera. So when my parents visited, my kids were just like, oh, here's, here's grandma and grandpa, like here they are. So people who were once very far away and inaccessible, who we couldn't really feel that sense of connection with, we can now do in, in a very profound way. And that's definitely new. And I think it's the biggest strength of technology is bridging people who are otherwise very far apart. Reflecting on what you said there, um, your children don't necessarily see the difference between having them on camera versus having them there in the room. Does that change the way that our children or, or, or all of us are think of connection? And, you know, is there a worry there or no? I think so, yeah. I also I found that a little bit concerning that my kids couldn't distinguish between the two. And I think as they get older, they, they certainly will, will yeah. yeah. And also the idea that they could actually hug their grandparents was right. a big deal. I think the other big benefit of technology is as a utility, so as as a way of making things that are annoying or frustrating or that take a long time to do much quicker to leave more time in the day for things that are actually meaningful and important. So uh, weather apps and um, you know apps that show us how to get from A to B, those kinds of apps, those very sort of small apps that we go to you know 10 or 15 times a day that save us a huge amount of time, we take those for granted now. But I think the fact that we have those at our fingertips makes 
much more of the day available to us to do things that really require our, our attention across time. And do you think that we are um, actually using the time that we've gained in better ways or are we wasting it away on other technology that perhaps <laughs> um, isn't as valuable? <laughs> I think we're doing a lot of the wasting. Okay. So the evidence suggests we spend about four hours a day on our screens. That's for adults in the US um, and actually around much of the developed world. For kids, it's even worse. Kids and teens spend sometimes somewhere between six and seven hours a day, many of them in front of their screens. And is that four hours a day for those of us that are in the working world, does that include while we're at work or is this four hours just doing whatever on our screens? Yeah, it's it's just your phone. Okay. So if you do work on your phone, that'll that'll be caught by that number. Uh -huh. If you do work on a screen like a laptop screen or okay. a, a tablet, that's gonna be an addition. Okay. And Am I really asking him this? Are you addicted to technology? Oh, totally, totally. There's not, no controversial response there. I'm happy to embrace that idea. Um, I, you know, I try very hard not to be, but there are certain things that pop up that I think are very hard for me to resist. Yeah. Um, email is my, my biggest poison by far. What actually got you into studying and researching this? You know, I, I wrote a book in 2013. I published a book in 2013 about all the little forces in the world around us that shape how we think, feel, and behave. All these sort of subtle cues, like the weather and colors and you know, natural environments and things like that. And, and I got to the end of that and I sort of wondered, is there, is there some profound big cue? You know, I'd been looking at all of the little ones. What is the biggest thing that's shaping how we live today? And I wanted to understand the force, that, that one force, and that was, for me, technology and screens. And I'd noticed it having an, a growing effect in my mm -hmm. life as well. I had this sense that there were certain experiences that I couldn't resist, and I started to wonder whether that was true of just me and also whether it might apply to more experiences than I had been interacting with. So there were a few little games that I played longer than I would have liked. Um, you know, my wife and I would sit on the couch next to each other and just sort of stare at our screens for hours, which is a very common experience. Yes. And I wondered what was going on there. Like as a psychologist, I knew I was in a position to kind of unpack that, to understand the, the mechanisms that were driving that. So I was sitting on a plane that was taking off. And as we were taking off, I started playing a game and it was a flight between New York and LA. So it's like a six hour flight. And as we landed, I was still playing the same game. And I had must have played, I don't know how many dozens of rounds. And I realized on landing that I had had this full schedule of things I wanted to do on that flight. I was very busy at the time. I wanted to do some writing. Um, I wanted to nap. I wanted to eat. I had a whole lot of things I wanted to do, and I did none of them. And it was that moment landing where the, the person next to me actually said, are you okay? <laughs> because it was so clear that I'd been engaged in this one experience in a very mindless way for six hours. I realized that maybe I wasn't okay and I wanted to understand better what was going on. That was the real moment that pushed me to start studying this more carefully and closely. I also read, I read a number of articles that I found very interesting, suggesting that some of the tech titans that we know have very publicly promoted their own products are very careful about how they mm -hmm. themselves use them and how their kids use them. And, you know, seeing myself, I think of myself as having a fair amount of self-control, but seeing myself succumb to these programs and then hearing that the people who designed them also are concerned about them, there was enough evidence that I needed to look into this further. So the middle part of the book, is really this sort of attempt to backward engineer all these experiences to say what is it about them that makes them so hard to resist and i talk about six or seven or eight different cues that are built in or tools that are built in and each one kind of further ramps up that sense that you can't let go of the device or the whatever you're experiencing i also got very curious about the history of addiction because um, to me this seemed a lot like addiction mm -hmm. like a, a sort of clinical form of addiction for some of us 
Um, and so I wanted to understand how we got to this point where without a substance, even just staring at a screen, you could right. be addicted to something. You know, there was nothing directly working on our brains or our bodies, but the experience was so well engineered that it became difficult for us to resist. And I, I, was, I found that really fascinating. Yeah, and it, 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 the way that it has embedded itself, itself in like our everyday life and every part of every experience right. that we have, it's you almost can't remember life without these screens. <laughs> it's really hard to remember. It's yeah. strange. It's only 11 years, 12 years ago. You know, it's, uh, it, it is, it's amazing how fast our lives have changed in that way. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so what is it that is going on that is making this technology that we're spending so much time on so hard to put down? I think there are a lot of hooks that are embedded in the tech we use, hooks that are sort of designed to, to get us interested and then to keep us engaged across time. And um, we're, we're very sophisticated now. So the people who develop these forms of tech know exactly what they're doing. They know that if you embed a particular feature in the tech, that'll make it harder to resist. People will spend marginally an extra, say, five minutes a day or 5% more on the platform that you've developed. So they will build those features in, which is it's what you're supposed to do when you design a product is to make it as right. sticky as possible. So, you know, there are, there are a lot of these features. They include things like um, goals. So goals that are sort of laid into the program in the same way as you would have with games. This is the process known as gamification, mm -hmm. where you turn experiences that wouldn't be like games into game-like experiences where you give people points. So as they engage with the platform, they get more and more points. They perhaps reach certain milestones, which are known as badges. And sometimes you build a social element in, which is known as a leaderboard. So you have all these game-like features that you would have seen on a Space Invaders arcade. <laughs> and now they're part of a huge amount of the things we do, a huge number of things we do. Um, the other thing that I think happens is if you have access to enough data, you can just, without any theories, A-B test a whole lot of features. So. If I have a button and I move it five centimeters to the right, or if I have a, a mission and instead of trying to save a person, you're trying to find a missing artifact or whatever it may be, I can tweak those features and then see how long different people engage with that experience, whether it's a game, whether it's a platform where you buy things or where you in interact with other people. And over time, you keep iterating that process. And so I know that the button in position A is better than the button in position B, so now everyone gets the button in position A. Then I want to know that button in position A, is it more effective if it's green or red? So I, And I keep doing that over and over again. So the version that arrives on your screen has been kind of weaponized over time to be maximally addictive. And every little feature has been optimized to extract an extra minute or two. And in aggregate, that means you end up spending a huge amount of time on the experience. I feel like everywhere you turn, these days, there's something that we're seeing or reading about technology and how addictive it is. And Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that tech companies have done systematically over the last 15 years or so is to eradicate what we call stopping cues. Mm -hmm. So a stopping cue is any moment in an experience that gently nudges you onto the next thing. And so reading a book or a magazine or a newspaper, a stopping cue might be getting to the end of an article or a chapter or, a, or the whole magazine or whatever it is. Um, and then you usually do something else. It's a subtle way of suggesting you go elsewhere. The the tech companies that try to capture your attention try to remove all of those little barriers. Um, so for example, where a news feed or some other feed might might have been bottomless at one point, now it's, sorry, where it would have had a, had a point where you had to click a button to show more content, or you would have got to the end of the content. Everything is bottomless, endlessly scrolling, feeds are infinite. There's just this kind of loop that keeps going and going and going. 
and um, and that's by design. So that's one of the really, really effective techniques to get you engaged. And this is borrowed from casinos in even the 1950s and 60s where they became designed like a maze where once you were in, you couldn't get out. You had no idea what time of day it was. You know, it's always dark. It's always nighttime in a casino. Um, and if you could see daylight, that means you can see the sun setting and then rising again. And that, that will gently push you to maybe, you know, if you've seen four sunsets and four sunrises, <laughs> it might be time to move on. Um, there are no clocks in casinos. The version of that in the tech world is similar, which is to say we want you to have no sense that time is passing or that you have to do something to decide at this particular moment to continue. Um, a lot of streaming software used to require that you did something to move on to the next piece of content. Now the, the default is that the next piece of content starts playing 10 seconds later. I think that is the single most effective tool these companies have at their, their disposal is to help you forget that you are engaging yeah. because then you're less likely to move on. So even though we as humans know this and we hear this and we're reading about it constantly, maybe we're even reading about it on our screens, um, why is it, I mean, why is it so difficult for us to then just do something about it as, as individuals or as human beings? Yeah, I mean, I think there are a lot of features of these forms of tech that make them hard to resist, despite the fact that we have this part of our brain that's telling us this is not good or right. I'm spending too long. The, the reward centers that are engaged here are very low level. They're very hard to overcome with self-control. And also self-control is to some extent limited. Right. If you have to exercise self-control at all moments of the day, you will become depleted and exhausted and eventually it'll give way and you'll do the wrong thing. So, you know, if you're in front of a screen or the screen is in your pocket, say, you know, you talk to Americans 24 hours a day, 75% of them can reach their phones without moving their feet every minute of the day that it's means amazing. it's yeah it's next to the bed or under the pillow or in their pockets or as in my case now sitting right next to me yeah. and that means i'm constantly resisting the temptation to pick it up and use it not so much in our conversation but any idle moment that's something you're wrestling with in the back of your mind so even though i know i'd rather not have my phone nearby i know there are certain reasons why i want it close you know contact with loved ones for example and as a result it's always there it's always kind of nagging at me and even though i know it's not the thing i should be doing i often turn to it when i shouldn't it's also become a sort of default yeah um, that's what we do in moments when we don't have anything else to do if you look at uh, you know we're now at, at a business school um, when all the students get into the elevator every single student without fail will take out a phone even if they're in the elevator for no more than three seconds between two floors and that's become a default because our boredom threshold is now incredibly low you know, we get bored doing nothing for even 30 seconds. That feels like too much. It's kind mm. of painful. And so I think for all those reasons, even knowing that these, these phones are extracting a lot of minutes from us, they often seem like the better option or the default. And so we just happen to turn to them. And I, I know there's, and I've heard you talk about it before, there's some research behind the benefits of being bored. Yeah. I, I mean, if you think about uh, creative or divergent or innovative thinking, it's really about hitting some sort of roadblock and finding a way around it. If you keep thinking in exactly the same way about exactly the same topics, you're never going to find a new avenue. And so boredom is sort of a, a, an all-purpose all roadblock that forces you to think differently about things. So whereas you may have gone from you know mental state A to mental state B a thousand times, in that moment of boredom, you're sitting there at mental state B thinking, well, what next? How do I get to C and D and E? And because you're sitting there with nothing else to do, your mind wanders. And that kind of mind wandering can be really useful if it, if it has a purpose. And often in those bored moments, it, it turns to find something useful to do and often does. So uh, it, it, it's these moments of boredom when we, you get a lot of really creative, interesting ideas. And when you talk to people about the generation of 
new ideas or new businesses or new concepts, a lot of that comes in moments when you, you aren't actively trying to, right. to court those ideas. Like when you're in the shower. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> you get your best. You get your best ideas in the shower. <laughs> you, you do. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So, and and I want to go back to um, what you talked about um, being in an elevator, because certainly in in the business world or even where I live in my condominium, um, it, it's the same phenomenon. You know, you get in, in the elevator, and even though you're going like one floor or three floors, which doesn't take very long, everybody's on their phone. Again, I kind of go back to. Nobody wants to make eye contact. Nobody says good morning or good afternoon. What what what's kind of happening in society and our culture because of our addiction or our kind of reliance or need to constantly pull out our devices? I feel like we're losing our ability to connect with other human beings or just be friendly. <laughs> yeah, I think that's exactly what's happening. I think what's happening is it's easier to connect with people to get the things that you need done done without having to actually talk to them so it's easier to text it's easier to email it's easier to send instant messages of some sort and we can get a lot of the the things we want to get done in life that way and that becomes the fallback that's the easiest path the path of least resistance in a sense and if you do that a thousand times instead of actually interacting with people that faculty kind of withers away that ability to do that so you know even there are times when say i've been homesick with the flu and i'm away from people for a week trying to get back into work life after yeah. a week, it feels like you've got to relearn some of the social skills that were second nature. Yeah. And I think that's happening on a very big scale to a lot of us and to our kids as well, that by not having the chances to, to interact with people on a daily basis, it starts to feel hard when you do. It feels like it requires a lot of effort and time and energy and you have to really think about what you're doing and that makes it unpleasant because humans don't like to have to put in that much energy and effort. So I, I think... By giving us options that make our lives easier, like texting and like email, we've made the options that we used to turn to, interacting with people face-to-face, less appealing. Yeah. What are some other ways that we as individuals can identify if we are kind of over-indexing on the use of our technology? Yeah, I think there are two main kinds of things. One is the opportunity cost of spending all that time on a phone. Like, what are you giving up because you spend, say, four hours a day on your phone? For many of us, it's social. So we don't spend as much time face-to-face really forming bonds with other people, whether they're loved ones or friends or even acquaintances. We just don't have that same building of relationships. For a lot of other people, it's about exercise. We're not exercising as much. We're not spending as much time in natural environments, outdoors. Um, so that's that's part of it is what you're giving up. But also the the experience of being on the phone is also not great for you if you do it enough, depending on what you're doing. So if all of your social interactions happen on a phone, you get this very sort of thin bandwidth of information. You're not having the same sort of rich connection that you would be having if you were having an offline interaction with someone. So you get you hear the words if you're even if you're on a on FaceTime or Skype or something like that, and you're actually talking to someone through a video. It feels like you're looking at them in the eyes, but you're not. You're looking at a screen. They are looking at a screen, and there's some sort of vague sense that you're looking at each other, but you actually aren't. You don't get that same richness of communication that you get face-to-face. And that changes the quality of the interaction. It changes the, the quality of the bond that you form. It just feels materially very different. It's better than nothing. But if the alternative is to actually spend time with people face-to-face, that's a far better alternative. There's just yeah. a richness of connection there. Are we kind of inadvertently feeding this addiction to technology and what can businesses do to 
you know, use this technology in a very productive way for business, but also yeah. help the people that work for them um, have a have a good relationship or a hygienic relationship with their technology, perhaps when they're not at work yeah. or even, you know, when they are working. I think there's a sort of rule of thumb that we blindly follow, which is that tech is good. And so we're going to just try to cultivate as much tech in any environment as we can. You see this in schools that more and more are turning to iPads and other devices, for example. And I, I don't think that's inherently bad. But when you do that sort of thing blindly and you just acquire more and more technology, that's a problem. And I think the question to ask is, what is the benefit we will get from using a particular form of technology? So what, what are the biggest challenges in the workplace or in the educational environment that we're in? And will tech help us solve those challenges? Will it make some something that we're doing better or easier or more efficient? And I think often the answer is yes. I think if it's communication challenges, tech is a miracle. If you want people to use screens for the sake of screens, I think it's worth auditing that experience and saying, is that right? Does that make sense? What are the costs of that? Is there a better way for us to do this? Would, would a pen and paper be better? And we know there are differences in how we think with pen and paper versus screens, yeah. for example. So I think it's just a matter of being more thoughtful. I don't think there is an, an inherent goodness or badness to tech. I think uh, I'm agnostic about the value of tech and of screens in general, but I think the way we are using it today is just kind of blind and we're not very thoughtful about it. So building on that, what are um, some of your most thoughtful tips for people and how they can create a better relationship with the technology that they use? I, I think one really important thing to do is to carve out some time that is tech-free. Um, no matter what happens in your day, there has to be time when you are not in front of a screen. And there are some very basic building blocks to being a human that require that. Uh, and so, you know, there are a number of ways of doing this. I think the, the easiest thing to do is to pick a part of the day that is consistent. So it could be that every day I have dinner. I know I will be eating dinner. I don't know whether I'll be alone or with other people at home or at a restaurant. The context might change, but I know I will be having dinner. And my rule will be every day during dinner and maybe for half an hour afterwards, I will be absolutely tech-free, whatever that means. Yeah. And it, there'll be times when it's annoying. Mm -hmm. that try to, trying to cultivate that habit means that you are spending that 30 minutes after dinner just being a little bored. And that's okay. It's fine for that to happen. And it'll become a habit. And what, what's interesting is I've watched a lot of people go through this process of trying to, to insert these tech-free periods into their days. And you start out feeling a sense of withdrawal, a sort of FOMO. You're wondering mm -hmm. what is it that you're missing out on? But it becomes something you really look forward to. Right. As you get past that initial withdrawal symptom that comes from, from being without tech, you start to say during the other parts of the day, I kind of wish this part were tech-free as well. And so a lot of people end up expanding that experience to cover the weekends. So one thing I try to do is... Uh, you know, I, obviously, I want to be able to take pictures of my kids on the weekend if they're doing interesting things and cute things. And, and so, airplane I, mode. yep, the phone in airplane mode. So turns it, it into a, a camera. camera. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I think I've heard you say that. Uh, you may have. You may have heard me say that before. But that was a really powerful realization for me that you could get the best of the phone without having the worst of it encroaching on your life. One of the other things that I that I've heard you say um, is spending time in nature, but kind of so immersed in nature that you lose track of, you know, of, of, of time or what yeah. year it is. So it could be, you know, 1908 or it could be 2018, but nature, nature is nature, right? Yeah. So that kind of removes all of the, you know, modern day barriers, I guess, if you will. Yeah, I think that's a really, that's really important that there should be at least certain parts of the day where you can't tell what year it is by looking around. Yeah. 
and and as you've said, that's probably hard for you to do in New York City. It though. is it is difficult. <laughs> yeah, I live in the suburbs, so yeah. I, I live outside of New York, and when I get home, I can do that much more easily. Yeah, and that's part of the reason I moved there yeah. is because it's near the ocean or near the water, and yeah. there are there are elements there that allow me to step only you know a few hundred yards from my home and to feel like this is it's a timeless experience, right. and that's really nice to have. Um, you know, there's nothing inherently better about what people were doing thousands of years ago, but there are reasons why we are here today. And part of it is that the things we were doing a thousand years ago or 2000 years ago worked for us as right. a species. So just spending a bit of the day um, going back to those kinds of things, whether it's natural environments or face-to-face -face communication, I think is, is a good way to work out whether you're living your life well. How do you personally manage your relationship with technology? And where do you, um, if you don't mind getting vulnerable here, where do sure. you kind of fall off the wagon, even knowing everything that you know, because you're human as well? Yeah, so I have a considerable commute. So I come into work and my commute is probably an hour and a half long. And I sometimes listen to music and podcasts, but I try very, very hard not to use my phone. You listen to the Work Well podcast, right? I do, of course, <laughs> of course, number one on the list. <laughs> so I, I sit on the train and I, I think people look at me like, what's wrong with this guy? Because everyone sits on the train mm -hmm. looking at their phones. Mm -hmm. It's an above ground train. You have good reception the whole way. And I sometimes sit there kind of staring ahead or looking out the window. And that's not the done thing anymore. Um, where do I fall off? That's a, that's a long answer. <laughs> um, I, I have an app on my phone that tracks how long I use my mm -hmm. phone every day, and it's, it's not great. I have to be very, very careful not to go above two or three hours a day, um, and many days it'll be longer than that. And what's kind of acceptable to you? Like, what's your target? Yeah, I, I used to think acceptable was under two hours. I now okay. think I've, I've shifted my boundary to under three hours. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, I think the biggest problem for me is not, is not big chunks of time. It's not like I sit and watch hours and hours and hours of video content. Because with small kids, I don't have time to do that. What it is, is that I will be interacting with my kids. I'll get a buzz in my pocket and I'll, I'll be distracted and I'll want to go to the phone. And sometimes I'll go to the phone just to pacify that need. And that I never feel good about. And if you do that enough times, your kids start to notice. Mm -hmm. My kids certainly know when that's happening, uh, especially as they get older and more sophisticated and clever about it. They then get curious. Like if there's something so interesting to dad that he needs to go to, into his pocket and look at the screen, that's going to be interesting to me as well. Right. And I see them learning from me in that way. And that I think is my biggest failing is not behaving in front of them the way I should be to model the way we should behave around phones. Yeah. So you use the term tech hygiene earlier, which I love. That's bad tech hygiene. Right. What what do you think the future will be like? Are, are we at a tipping point where we're going to start seeing better use and design of technology or is it just going to continue to grow and kind of take hold of us as, a, as humanity? Well, all of these companies are profit-making companies. Yeah. So if your model rests on attention, you're part of the attention economy yeah. where you're competing with other companies that want attention, the only way you will succeed as far as the bottom line goes, as far as money goes, is by, by capturing more attention than anyone else. So to the extent that companies, big companies, are now building in features that allow us to disconnect, those, those features are eating away at the bottom line. And that can be a problem. Now, I think what a lot of them are gambling on is this idea that in the long run, um, consumers are starting to and will continue to demand that tech companies treat them with respect, which involves giving them the ability to disconnect. Now, obviously, we all have our own self-control. We have, to some extent, the power to say, I don't want to use this program anymore. But we know enough about how these programs are designed to know that we can't do that easily. Right. If they're trying to help us a little bit, I think it's 
it's an attempt to salvage the long-term brand loyalty. image and yeah. loyalty. Mm -hmm. And as we start to become more critical of what we're consuming, especially looking into the next five or 10 years, I think we will not respect and we'll try to find alternatives to the companies that don't allow us to disconnect, that don't help us in some way manage our time. It is bad for the bottom line in the short term. Mm -hmm. There are other companies that don't require, say hardware companies, for example, they don't need you to spend an additional minute on their product. Right. They just want you to buy the next one when the next one's available. So for those companies, it's a completely different economic model and they can help you get off the device. And a lot of them are doing that very successfully. There's also, there are new, even more immersive forms of tech around the corner. So um, virtual and augmented reality tech is, is still mm -hmm. in its infancy, but I, when you talk to people in the industry, a lot of them say within the next few years, we will all have our own personal goggles. They'll become very inexpensive. In the same way as we walk around with phones, we will have goggles that will connect to our phones and there'll, there'll be enough software that, you know, right now, if I wanna go to a beach in Greece, I'll just put on my goggles and I'll be there. And as the software becomes more sophisticated, you'll be able to essentially leave the, you know, the complications of the here and now at any moment to go to this ideal perfect world that is virtual, that doesn't really exist. Now, when that starts to happen, I think if, if a phone, if a small rectangular device can remove us from where we are right now, imagine how powerful mm. an immersive experience will be in, in removing us. And when we're removed by a phone, we're still in the room. Right. But when you have goggles on, you aren't interacting with anyone in the room. So I, this is my big concern and why I think we need to spend so much time thinking about this now while while we still have yeah. the ability to focus. I think it's going to become harder over yeah. time. Yeah, I hadn't, I, I mean, you're scaring me. Just, yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's, there's a piece, of, there's a part of me that's going, oh, wow, I can just, you know, transport myself to this serene it Sounds amazing, and, right? Yeah. yeah, there's a part of me that's like, that's perfect for meditation practices. But then there's a part of me that's like, oh, wait, because this can be, yeah. you know, overused and abused just like anything else, right? Uh, I've heard you talk about um, children and screen time, um, yeah. you know, you, children using screens um, and kind of the, the games or what they're doing on screen at, and at the pace at which it's moving yes. and some recommendations around that. Yeah, I, you know, this, this is something that came to me when I moved to the US. So I lived in, in a small town out in New Jersey and things moved fairly slowly there. And I would come into New York, which was about 90 minutes away, and it just felt overwhelmingly fast. The pace of everything, the way people walked, the way they interacted, the pace at which they spoke, everything felt really fast. Then I moved to New York about five years later. And maybe three months after I arrived, I realized that all of those things that I used to notice didn't seem so quick anymore. They felt comfortable. And then when I traveled, I would go to Paris or I'd go back home to Sydney. Those places just felt ploddingly slow, which was really strange because they'd never felt slow before. Mm -hmm. I always felt they were really interesting and engaging. Kids have this experience, but much more extremely than that. And especially when they're young, you are setting the equilibrium, the comfortable speed for them. So if you want your kids to sit with a book and read and grapple with ideas and stories that take time and energy and attention, if you give them New York City, the reading is like a small town to them. It's slow, it takes a long time to get involved in. So if you sit them in front of the TV and let them watch a show that's really fast paced with animals flying around and you know, cartoon characters interacting at high speed, they're gonna demand that rate of engagement and level of engagement from everything they do. They will not wanna read, they won't wanna sit and talk to you, they won't wanna interact with each other. So the basic rule of thumb is start as slowly as possible with things that are very slow. They can still be engaging, but slow paced and introduce things that are quicker paced slowly across time. 
And the way to, to tell whether you're doing this right is just to experience whatever it is yourself. So if there's a show you're thinking of showing your kids, sit there and think to yourself, does this feel quick? Is the pace of this rapid? And if it is, hold off for a year. Find something that goes more slowly. So Sesame Street is extremely good at this. They, they, they pace everything quite slowly. There are real interactions between real people or real Muppets or real characters. Mm-hmm. And that's by design. It's meant to be slow. But there are other shows where things move really fast mm-hmm. and that's, that's bad because yeah. then Sesame Street and everything else becomes boring. Yeah, I just watched the Mr. Rogers documentary and he actually talks about the pace of his show. It was very intentional, but exactly. it was very slow as well. It's so a great he, example. Yeah. Mr. Rogers is the perfect example. Yeah, yeah. I'm so grateful Adam could be with us today. Thank you to our producers and our listeners. You can find the WorkWell podcast series on Deloitte.com, or you can visit various podcatchers using the keyword WorkWell, all one word, to hear more. If you have a topic you would like to hear on the WorkWell podcast series, or maybe a story you would like to share, reach out to me on LinkedIn. My profile is under the name Jennifer Fisher or on Twitter at JenFish23. We're always open to recommendations and feedback. Please share, post, and like this podcast. Thanks and be well.